Peyton Place, the town everyone's talking about. All the people of Peyton Place, with all their joys and sorrows, passions and compassions, are on the screen at last. I'm going to tell you a hard truth about yourself. It isn't sex you're afraid of. You can say yes or no to that. It's love. That's what you can't handle. There's a place I know that I'd like to show you that no one knows about. Not even you. It's my secret place. Uh, I knew every spot within three miles of Peyton Place. Wow! But you've always had that. Yes, by telephone, by postcard, by magazine interviews. You've given me everything but yourself. Starring Lana Turner as the great stage star Laura Merritt. The men in her life, John Gavin. Her daughter, Sandra Dee. Susan Conner, who was born to be hurt. I don't want to have to come through back doors or feel lower than other people or apologize for my mother's color. Don't say she can't help her color. But I can. Sticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. I'm Kristen Lopez. I'm Drea Clark. And I'm Samantha Ellis. This week we are honoring the centennial of actress Lana Turner, talking about two of her most recognized films, 1957's Peyton Place and 1959's Imitation of Life. That's right, we are doing two movies. I don't think we should waste any time. I picked these very deliberately, as I told both of you. I wanted to look at Lana Turner's persona as it related to, I think, what a lot of people tend to know her for, that soapy, ultra-glamorous, ultra-sophistication, and controversy. So I actually picked the movies that came out before and after the death of her boyfriend, Johnny Stampinato, which somebody had told me after the fact that I should have technically picked 1958's Another Place, Another Time with Sean Connery mm -hmm. because apparently Johnny Stompanato came to the set and pulled a gun on Sean Connery. And that was the film that actually did have the loss of income. I didn't because I feel there's a theme that changes very yeah. slightly with these two films and how you relate to Lana Turner. And I thought of this specifically if people remembered when Jean Harlow when her husband Paul Byrne died, that she was making a string of movies where she was very soapy, very salacious, very sexually charged. And then she started making movies after that that were a little bit more chaste and the persona changed because she was associated with scandal. And I wanted to see if the same still applied here. Thought to mention too, while we're talking about famous blondes and their boyfriends dying, changing them. The one that always comes to mind for me is Carol Lombard. I feel like it's never talked about. Everyone says, as far as critics go, the change in her acting talent, for lack of a better word, completely shifted after her boyfriend Russ Colombo passed away in 1934. Really the first film that she did after that was 20th Century, which is an absolute favorite of mine. It's argued that she would never have even become a star if she didn't have that tragedy in her life to add that emotional depth. So I'm really curious to see what you guys are going to say about how this changed Lana Turner's acting style, if at all. 
so we have Peyton Place, which, to give some background, is directed by Mark Robson, who, if that name sounds familiar, you probably listened to our episode on Valley of the Dolls because he directed that film as well. And boy, can you tell that he directed both of those movies. Both of them have narration. Both of them are incredibly scandalous and salacious. Valley of the Dolls is a bit funner because it's 1960s. You can go a bit further than you could in the late 50s. He directed it. It tells the story of a small New England town that is filled with secrets and scandal. Based on a book by Grace Metallius, who hated this movie. There's a fantastic book, and the name escapes me right now, about Grace Metallius and her life after Peyton plays. There was a lot of ups and downs with her life after this movie came out. And then we have Imitation of Life from 1959, directed by Douglas Sirk, who also had done Magnificent Obsession, which is also a remake. It tells the story of a aspiring actress played by Lana Turner, who lives with a African-American widow played by Juanita Moore, and they each have a daughter, one played by Sandra D, which is Lana Turner's character's daughter, and the other by Susan Conner. They all have a lot of issues that involve romance, life, race passing, very different themes, but the overall tone is still the same. Drea, I want to start with you. Had you seen both of these movies? What did you know about Lana Turner prior to recording? I'd seen Imitation of Life. I watched that at university. I mean, it's one that any film school loves to dig into because it's so beautifully composed. The use of mirrors and the color stories. There's just a lot in there that's very juicy for a film student. I was obviously familiar with her. The erroneous Schwab's spotting star quality as a teenager, which of course wasn't actually Schwab's. I was so cognizant of her. I had not seen this Peyton place, but I'd seen part of the television series of it. And it's such a soap opera. I was like, this is a soap opera, right? Like I watched the entire movie and was like, oh, I'm just marathoning a season of a soap opera right now. When you're listing all-time stars, Lana Turner's up there. Obviously, we've talked about her in other films as well. We've talked about Postman, Always Rings Twice, obviously, which is probably the most recent. Lana Turner, I knew about the Johnny Stompanato murder before I knew about Lana Turner as an actress. It's a very weird way to get into her. I heard about the murder because I'm very into Hollywood crime. I read Cheryl Crane's biography of her mother that she had written which is worth reading if you're interested in her perspective and then finally I got into the films and then you realize she was probably one of the most beautiful women before Marilyn Monroe turned up yet her career I feel very much has peaks and valleys of really trying to change with the era and the Stompanato murder really did cement and try to change that persona somewhat. Samantha, I know you're a big Lana fan. What was your previous background with these films and the scandal and just Lana Turner as a persona? I would say my Lana Turner love is a little more recent. I've always found her absolutely beautiful and I just devour every movie she's in. It wasn't until she was star of the month two years ago in December, I believe it was, I watched just about every single film that they showed that Mm. month. I became such a big fan of hers. She's just about one of the most old Hollywood, old Hollywood actresses there was. She was so of the time. And it's hard not to love anybody that dated Tyrone Power. (laughs) 
Like I love seeing the pictures of them together and she was so glamorous. I totally like self-insert when I look at those pictures. I'm like, Lana Turner looked like that and dated Trump Power. I wish that were me. To be fair though, Lana Turner dated a lot of men. (laughs) True, but she said that Tron was the love of her life. I don't know if that's true. I mean, if I were Lana Turner dating all those men, I'd probably say that about everybody. (laughs) Throne power, definitely up there for me. As far as her work goes, I would say I'm a little more well-versed in her late 30s, early 40s work. Love her in these glamour girls, dancing co-ed, those really like fun or not so fun, these glamour girls there. These fun like musicals of her when she was really young. But I had seen both Peyton Place and Imitation of Life before this. I had seen each of them once. I'd seen Peyton Place. I was doing a pretty in-depth review of it for an Arthur Kennedy event, which of all the characters to focus on when you're watching Peyton Place. Yeah, right? Arthur Kennedy's character. I didn't know. I genuinely did not know what his character was like before I watched this. I was like, oh, Arthur Kennedy was nominated for an Oscar for this. This is the movie that I'm going to choose honoring Arthur Kennedy. (laughs) And I learned the hard way that that was not what I should have done. Imitation of Life, just Cirque in general. I love him. As you guys know, in the top three discoveries of 2020, I've really been digging into Cirque lately. And that's definitely one of the films that I've seen of his and appreciated. And Lana just sparkles in it. Mm. And we'll definitely have to talk about the differences She plays very similar characters, but the tone and the mannerisms and the emotions behind the characters are so different. And I'm excited to talk about that with you guys. Let's dive into Peyton Place and then we'll talk about the crime and then we'll go into Imitation of Life. Peyton Place is a movie that is ushering in this transition from movies to television. Like Drea says, it's a soap opera. It is at least a season's worth of TV in a two and a half hour movie. It is really long. I was actually surprised re-watching it. Probably the first time I've seen it all the way through. Second time I've engaged with it. But I thought it was far more scandalous the first time I saw it, maybe because I'd only seen half of it. There were several plots, but the scandalous plot is Hope Lang's character, Selena Cross. She's the movie's definition of poor white trash who is raped by her stepfather, played by Arthur Kennedy, gets pregnant, something happens, and she gets an appendectomy, which is essentially a termination. Arthur Kennedy's character comes back, there's an altercation, she bludgeons him, and then she goes on trial. That's literally the last maybe 20 minutes of the film. The rest of the movie is more trying to evoke what Splendor in the Grass did a lot better, which is talking about wayward teens who were all horny and want to take their clothes off. What poor Lana as the character of Constance McKenzie, her name is Constance, so you know exactly what you're getting when you see her. Or do Um, you? you Or do you? (laughs) And she has a daughter, Allison, who is played by Diane Varzi. There is this interplay of Lana's character being very concerned about her daughter getting naked with boys or making out with them or even being in the same room with them. It becomes just insane. But you can see this film being a launch pad for a lot of other soapy films that had happened before but would really intensify in the early 60s. It stood out to me because I knew we were talking about it 
in the umbrella of Lana Turner performances because Peyton Pace is a true ensemble. I mean, there's approximately 130 characters. (laughs) So she is one of those. She meets a love interest in the new high school principal and then her storyline with her daughter and then some interaction with her maid who's played by Hope Lang character's mother. It's a soap opera. I'm hearing myself. It's a soap opera. It's all everybody's intertangled. It's a small town. My thing with Peyton Pace that was interesting to me, I agree, Kristen. I always thought of it as being very salacious. It's really interesting. One of the first characters you meet is Miss Thornton. And I got such a a wannabe Thornton Wilder vibe from this in terms of small town analysis and everybody's in each other's business. But I never felt like even by the end, and maybe it's because there's zero subtext to any of this. There's no themes. There's no emotional resonance. It's just story, story, story. But the whole premise and the big speech at the end and what's held Lana Turner's character back the whole time is she's been living with the secret and it's dictated how she raises her daughter and looking at Lana Turner's life in the realm of that and also how it affected the marketing even of this film is fascinating. The film falls short because I don't think the town ever really comes across as mean and small-minded as it's supposed to. There's one lady with some bad hats who seems to do a lot of gossiping, but I feel like if you ran her out of town, it'd probably be okay. Whereas everything is all of the storylines, the arc of them is that there's something someone's either been hiding or they're facing repercussions because of this town. It didn't always land, but watching Lana Turner and knowing once it's revealed that her character is hidden the whole thing about basically the paternity of her daughter and her own backstory and how that's made her be this forcefully moral character. Fascinating how they took that and then how it boosted the eventual box office of this movie when she faced her own stuff with her real life daughter. I mean, the crossover in this is, it's bonkers. Like it's insane that this was being released while all her real stuff was happening or that it had come out and was still in the theaters. The Johnny Stompanato thing would happen in April of 58 and this film was still, because of the way movies were released, still trickling into smaller and smaller theaters and films had a far longer shelf life in the theater than they do now. And you're totally right. Somebody could watch both of these movies and say they're both presenting Lana Turner as a devoted mother, but that devotion is different in each film. Here, that devotion is to her daughter's chastity and her daughter's reputation how her reputation being the mother learning that she had her daughter out of wedlock and she is actually the illegitimate child of a married man again that all plays on lana as being a multiple divorcee having a very public life the sins of the mother trickling down imitation of life is a total course correction after all of this had happened the problem with Peyton Place as a film is the book was far more salacious. That's why Grace Metallius hated the movie so much. Fox said, we can't do all this. You're lucky you're getting rape and incest children. You're lucky. (laughs) Even the incest is only because that's Russ Tamblin's character. And it's sort of just, oh, your mom is real into you. But that's where it ends. We'll get not quite an abortion, but it's an abortion. The doctor refers to it. As a miscarriage that he had to terminate. The lengths they had to go to talk around 
anything that uh, might imply <laughs> that they exactly yeah. were breaking the law. It's Lloyd Nolan too. You're like, oh, I can't be mad at him. <laughs> Yeah. I just want to throw out, too, if we're talking about Russ Tamblin, I mean, number one, I couldn't let Peyton Place go by without talking about Russ Tamblin, because you guys know how much I love Russ Tamblin, and this was his only I was nominated performance. You whenever I saw him being particularly I, adorable in this. I appreciate it. Is it just me, or could this have very easily been Norman Bates's prequel story? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, his but name is Norman, and he has a yeah. mom who's obsessed with him, and he's yes. a sexually repressed, shy, coming-of-age man in yes. a small town. Like, like, how is this not Norman Bates? Yeah, All like he if, needs to if do Norm- is buy a hotel at this point. If Norman Page hadn't joined the paratroopers, if the war hadn't saved him, which is a ridiculous concept, yeah, he would have gone full Bates. It would have been full rocking chair... I like that a lot. This was Lana Turner's, her and Russ Tamblin and Diane Bursey, Hope Lang, all got their only Oscar-nominated performances in this film. For Lana, it just seems like a consolation nomination at that point because she has done such better work in a multitude of other movies that I don't see the stretch for this other than if we're going to go with what the Oscars tends to do all the time which is it's an older actress that is letting herself be matronly they love to reward the hot actress who's willing to play a mom or get down I, I or something the idea of that she's matronly she's got like a 22 inch waist and a corset on under it perfectly applied makeup but i Every think that's scene, the thing yeah. and i know samantha's gonna roll her eyes or something it's the grace kelly effect of look at this hot beautiful woman we're gonna try to make her look like somebody's mom they didn't even try that's one of the things that i appreciated about this she has zero maternal look to her zero matronly she runs the town store the fashion store she's always kitted up she's this gorgeous ward her imitation of, of life wardrobe is the most beautiful thing ever and a kabillion dollars worth of couture and jewels so it's not quite that but she's got nothing but beautifully tailored suits and house dresses and her hair is always done her makeup's always on like she does not look like a mother in this like every time someone finds out that she has a kid it's almost a surprise like what her that hot lady who uh, owns the store The stretch that I was noticing that I noticed far more than the appearance is her chemistry, or lack of it, with Lee Phillips, who plays Michael Rossi, the new principal of the school. They have this issue with intimacy where she she won't put out because she's got this reputation, sort of Damocles hanging over her head, and she doesn't want to give in. And he's like, I'm not about that life girl i just want to be with you i was just sitting there looking at him like no offense to lee phillips sure he's a perfectly nice guy and he had a lengthy list of credits but this movie is about lana and it's almost insanely bizarre to me after playing opposite some of the hottest men in the world john garfield your tyrone powers your fernando lamases this guy (laughs) this guy He also has the most curiously colored hair I've ever seen in my life. And I could never figure it's out. Gray, if it's gray, like, right? Gray, it's gray, like a blue gray. 
but it's silver and i don't mean silver like grandpa i mean like martian the suit you're gonna wear to space spray like, painted almost his hair looks like spray painted. <laughs> I kept, were they trying to age him up it's interesting that you call this her movie because when i saw this this might have been the first lana turner movie i watched like i'd heard of her but i hadn't seen anything so to me this is not her movie when i saw it and even when i, I thought i was like Oh no, this is the movie of the kid, the teen movie, and she plays the mom. And that's why it's just stand out to me in it that she's not the mom that we normally see in these movies. I appreciated that. I don't know if it reflects uh, as much depth. And I agree, knowing more of her canon now is more of a, you really should have gotten this for something else, but you should get it for something. So here you go. She is one of the only characters that has nuance and it's the idea of this woman living with this enormous guilt of how her life came to be and how she came to be a mother and the choices she made earlier and how they were damaging and that living and repressing yourself because of guilt is a really interesting character study and I thought she executed that well. The really interesting thing about Lana in this film isn't so much her past as the very pointed decisions that she's making for her own sake and for the sake of her daughter and for her future. She is so obvious. She says very outright, I don't want a man in my life. That part of me is past. I don't want to have sex with anybody. I'm good. And then both her daughter and this principal are like, no no you're gonna though (laughs) just as a sort of 50s thing they just totally disregard what she wants and how she feels because that's just not normal you guys are right i mean she looks fabulous in this movie but they made a very clear point in the trivia to say that she dyed her hair a few shades darker blonde I, i did notice that as a blonde myself who fluctuates I did notice that because she's normally a crisper, more platinum, more shiny. And I was like, but that's to me also, that's also the funniest nod. Oh, if you're Lana Turner, professionally beautiful, and the most you could do is like, oh, I'm going to go two shades darker blonde. I love that. That's the Grace Kelly of it. She's not even putting on a shawl. She's not even putting on glasses. She's just dyeing her hair darker blonde and she's supposed to be more- But like not even like mousy. Just, oh, I mean, I'm still going to look beautiful. I mean- A little darker. To go back to the ensemble nature of it, there were a lot of movies like this in the late 50s, predominantly based on literature, mostly popular books written Mm -hmm. for women and they all were adaptations where you had competing storylines usually three young women an older actress who plays the wizened don't turn into me type of character then you have all these avenues to talk about sex and relationships there's usually a bad girl that something bad happens to which in this case is the hope lang character terry moore was the bad girl yeah Terry Moore is the bad girl turned good, whereas Selena Cross is the bad girl because she's poor. She's a good girl. Everything bad happens to her. Do you like me defending this fictional character? (laughs) How dare you? I I jumped too. I was like, wait. (laughs) I'm using bad in the sense that because there is a class difference, Mm -hmm. the, the movie is cementing that everything bad happens to her 
because she's poor. Right. Because she doesn't come from any money. She isn't able to rise above her circumstances until the end with the trial and all of that. But it made me think of something like The Best of Everything, which also has Hope playing in it, oddly enough. But the Lana character in that film is played by Joan Crawford. It's really just her reminding them this is the life of regret you could have if you don't make good choices you're totally right that the young girls are the reasons to watch i mean terry moore samantha plays betty who is the bad girl the one that's fast and loose and wants to go all the way with rodney but then she's allowed to have that transformation predominantly once rodney dies it shocked me so she's very hot cha cha and wearing all these red dresses <laughs> stunning stunning girl but very like that flirty vivacious sexual comfort comfortable in her body but she has a line once rodney's died so towards the end the father who's been terrible to her reaches out an olive branch and she basically says i know i was a fast girl but rodney likes fast girls and i wanted to fulfill what he liked it was such a pointed bringing in and acknowledging of what had set her on a trajectory and normally that's a character that's just like no she's just slutty i really liked that little detail it comes off so splendor in the grass to me just like Kristen was saying not only does her character remind me so much of virginia the sister in that film but also of course the brother and sister so it's not like the same relationship But also you have in that movie, the popular guy that wants a slut to mess around with, for lack of a better word. Yes, like Rodney, it wasn't just that he was looking for someone to mess around with. He loved her. He wanted to be with her forever. He just likes fast, interesting, dynamic, sexual women. She's like, great. I am all of those things. And the movie (laughs) let her be that. The first time I watched this movie, especially, Terry Moore really drew me in. I love her in this. I love her in everything. Honestly, I need to see more of her work. She's still with us. She's still with us. Yes, she is. Yes. Diane Bursey and Hope Lang. Hope Lang gets the meteor role because, again, there's crime and all of that. I liked her better in this than I think I liked Diane Bursey, if only because poor Diane Bursey as Allison McKenzie, who's our narrator of all things, really does fall into, if you've seen Valley of the Dolls, the main character from that film, which is just the nice girl, doesn't have a whole lot going. She's on the right path. She's making good choices, but she's not particularly interesting. Terry Moore and Hope Lang, that's your Sharon Tates and your Lee Grants and your Patty Dukes. Those are the characters that are interesting, but you need that anchor, that moral compass. And I'm kind of shocked that they didn't just give that role to Lana But they didn't. I do think I prefer Hope Lang's story in this, even though it is tragic, but there is a lot for an actor to do. Oh, absolutely. And we were talking about whose movie is this. Funny enough, I do think it is Alison McKenzie's. I mean, not only because she's the narrator, but I feel like the whole thing is sort of framed around her life and the people that she knows and is involved with. It seems very Laura Ingalls Wilder. Maybe I'm just saying that because she's an author. But absolutely, it's like, this is the story of my life. These are the people that I know. These are the good and bad things that happen to them as you, I'm growing up in a small town. You are so totally right that as much as this movie wants to be salacious, it really is the little house of salacious The little sex. house on Satan, please. <laughs> the little ha- exactly, exactly. 
we can come back to Peyton Place if we need to, but I want to get the Johnny Stompanato death in here. Peyton Place comes out in 1957. April 4th, 1958. Johnny Stompanato, if you don't know who he was, was definitely Lana's type. Look him up. She dated the same guy numerous times. He was a bodyguard and mob enforcer for Mickey Cohen. They had a very tempestuous relationship that involved a lot of violence, a lot of makeup breakups. Lana Turner just gotten out of, I believe it was her fourth marriage with Lex Barker, who Cheryl Crane would accuse of assaulting her as a child. So mother and daughter already have this very fraught relationship. On April 4th of 1958, there's rumors that her and Johnny Stompanato and Lana Turner had gone out to buy cutlery. (laughs) Becomes just a weird joke at the end of this type of story. They had gotten back together after the events of 1957 when he had shown up to the set of another time, another place, and assaulted Sean Connery and got thrown out of the United Kingdom. It was eight days after the Academy Awards. He showed up at her house, which is still there in Beverly Hills. They began arguing very heavily. Allegedly, he threatened to kill her, and her daughter, Cheryl Crane, was making other threats about hurting her and mobster stuff. Cheryl Crane entered the room very briefly and was urged by her mother to leave. In the midst of the argument, Lana Turner broke off her relationship and asked him to leave the house. Now, this is where the story changes a little bit based on mother or daughter. The way that Cheryl Crane tells it, she had been watching television in the next room. She grabbed a kitchen knife. She had heard their arguing and he was coming out of the room. She entered the room and the knife and his body just kind of merged. He was stabbed enough that he severed his aorta as well as his liver. I mean, it was a pretty perfect stab wound and he died very quickly. The way that Lana Turner would tell it on the stand, she was walking in front of him and Cheryl Crane just stormed into the room and she originally thought that she had punched him and it turns out that she stabbed him. There's a lot of discrepancy and of course that made the trial very very interesting to watch. Lana Turner went up on the stand and testified that she was a battered woman. After that there were numerous conspiracy theories that essentially Lana Turner had stabbed him and put her daughter out as the scapegoat knowing that her daughter if she told the story of defending her mother would not serve any time which she didn't. There was a wrongful death suit filed by his family, which they paid out. It just went away, legally speaking, but the taint was there for Lana Turner being accused of being a murderer at worst and covering it up or just having this murderous daughter. Now, Cheryl Crane is still with us, says that her story has never wavered, that why would her mother put her as this potential murder suspect? I have my own theories on the case. I won't share them here, but I have them. They exist. It was something that really tainted her career going forward. And so she did 1959's Imitation of Life, which is a remake of the 1934 version of Imitation of Life starring Claudette Colbert. Same story, exact same story, tweaked in different ways in 1959. So I've seen both versions of this movie now. I like 1934 for a lot of reasons. Racial dynamics wise, it's uh, oddly enough, the 30s version is a lot more progressive than I'd say 59 is with regards to the relationship between the white character and the African American character. They're both women. It's just, it's weird that it's changed. This is definitely this return to the glitz and the glamour. It's a very beautiful film. It's Douglas Sirk. She gets, and I was noticing this as I was watching it, John Gavin 
is really hot, but he also kind of looks like Johnny Stompinato. Is that weird that we cast a guy that looks like him? It's a very deliberate mother love course correct in the vein of Stella Dallas, where Lana's character is very determined to be a career woman, but then at the end has this come to Jesus moment where she's like, oh no, what if I have forsaken my daughter? Her and I love the same guy, but this isn't Mildred Pierce, so it's not going to end in murder. Which, oh God, that's another reference that would have been really weird post-58. Drea, what do you think? Where do you want to well, start with it's this? It's interesting because I think that the differences in terms of how the mother's mother in these films, in Peyton Place, she is this very helicopter, overwhelming, aware of every single detail, questioning every single choice. She's a negligent mother in Imitation of Life. She wants to be an actress. She sets up Kate and Allie scenario with her and Juanita Moore's character who moves in and then they're raising their two daughters together. And I would love to see a brand new version of this movie that takes on that as much as it does the passing element. She's not a great mother. She's absent a lot, not paying a ton of attention there for the special stuff in the holidays but distracted out of it and so when she makes her big turn of oh I need to be a better mother her daughter's 18 she's about to move out and go to college I don't know if this is a redemptive arc you've been kind of a terrible mother this whole time but in a loving way not in an abusive way if that makes sense I don't know if you get more credit if you're just negligent than if you're outright abusive. There's uh, shades of damage you can do, you guys. Don't let me uh, try and make it black and white. Pun intended. <laughs> Lana is on the totally opposite ends of the spectrum here in both films. You've got too much and then not enough. <laughs> if we had to pick one here, I would say that Sandra D seems fairly happy aside from the fact that she wants John Gavin so bad, which... I can relate. Who can blame her? (laughs) Nobody blames her. I will (laughs) side note, and then I'd love to hear more from Samantha, but the realization that they had Latino lead in this movie that had all of this stuff about racial dynamics and it was never mentioned, I also found super interesting. Uh, That's something we can put in a whole other thread someday. Wait, who do you mean? <laughs> Hold on. Before John, I, Gavin, John, John Gavin. Gavin's Chilean-Mexican. No. Yeah, yeah. No, he was the ambassador to Mexico. In the I 80s. just watched him in Midnight Lace trying to put on a British accent, so I don't even know what he is anymore. He is my original big, dumb, beautiful baby. So yeah, I love gorgeous. him so much. Hitchcock didn't we love him. We need to do uh, an episode but... on him. <laughs> <laughs> He's another one of those, like James Garner, where we all have that singular moment of oh wait all three of us love the same man (laughs) it's funny you mentioned that because my whole latin origin as far as the cast of imitation of life is susan coner because i'm a huge fan of her mother lupita tovar who starred in the spanish language version of dracula way back in 1931 i'm a huge fan of both of the work of her sons chris and paul white's And let's talk about the fact that this movie has an African-American subplot starring poor Juanita Moore as the only actual person playing the character that they're supposed to be playing. Let's address the elephant in the room. 
the elephant in the room. So there is a race passing story in this film. It was there in 34 as well. Juanita Moore's character, Annie Johnson, has a daughter, Sarah Jane, played by Susan Conner. Now, Susan Conner is a Latino woman playing a Black woman who is trying to pass for white. Pin that over here. At the same time, the character is also doing this race passing in a way that she gets beaten by Troy Donahue of all people. She ends up trying to be a showgirl, moves as far away from her mother as she can to the point that she tells her mom, pretend I'm dead, don't come looking for me. And it isn't until her mother, who is the ultimate example of piety and self-sacrifice and good-hearted African-American experience, right down to having the spirituals playing and this huge, predominantly Black neighborhood turnout for her funeral, isn't until she dies that Susan Conner's Sarah Jane is like, oh no, maybe I made the wrong decision. The race passing element, I mean, it was there in 34, and I know they were never going to cast a biracial actress. They come with the To be fair, she is a biracial actress. She's just not African-American and white. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yes. But I think that the problem I had comparing this to the 34 film specifically is that in the 34 film, Claudette Colbert and Louise Beavers, who plays the character in 34, they have a true friendship. They're both businesswomen. They start a business together. They are always partners. And the problem that I had with 59 is that we always remind you that Juanita Moore is her friend, but she's also her mate. That was the problem that I couldn't really get over. But for me, in comparing the two of them, in the first one where they're partners, there's a whole drama that comes up because there's this stolen recipe, yeah. business thing that goes away. Whereas by this of separating their careers, they are just friends. They are just support for each other. And it takes away an element of drama that this film does not have the time to get into. They've also done a thing which is unfair to look at, but Juanita Moore is incredible. And yet from the beginning, when she and Lana Turner's characters meet, are introduced and are brought into each other's lives, it's dictated by Juanita Moore, the role that she's playing. She's continually told, you're not the maid. Can I hire some help for you? Who do you need? And she's doing things that alleviate or they give her comfort for their arrangement. And from the beginning, we need a Morris performance and this is so incredible. And you meet her and her ever present smile both seems completely genuine and sincere. And she seems a lovely, warm person to be around, but you're also so cognizant that this woman knows she has to have that pleasantness about her because she is, is in a position where she is forced to be needing the help of literal strangers and that she's in these untenable situations. She's decided to be like, you catch more flies with honey as a perspective. Imitation of life, I would love to see get into because I also think regardless of the casting of her daughter, that it's Troy Donahue was actually perfect for me because that scene was the shorthand for every negative thing that could happen to the daughter as a result of people finding out her race when she's living, existing, and passing as white. 
having it be so dramatic and so violent and terrible and from this person this troy donahue that's a shorthand also the troy donahue and sandra d are both in this means that greece was stuck in my head that song (laughs) where they're both mentioned who knew that would thread in but the other thing that you get with Juanita Moore is a direct comparison of two maternal styles next to Lana Turner. And so it brings out, you would be like, oh, Lana Turner's really not around much. But then you see how much her daughter is. She's literally having conversations with Juanita's character about what she hopes to talk to her mother about, which means she's then just talking to Juanita about it. It's a great way to show the failings of Lana's character so that when she sweeps in and her daughter's surprised when she makes it to her own graduation. Sandra D gets short shrift in this movie because this was also the year she did Gidget. She gets a bit more to do in Gidget, obviously being the lead of that film than she does here as Susie. Just because Sandra D's character is meant to just be so wholesome and so sweet, the only real controversy is that she's in love with John Gavin and that comes at the end. The rest of the movie, she's just kind of smiling and having a ball. It's not really anything shocking or interesting. She's just there because they both need daughters. That's, I think, unfortunate to her. Watching this version and going back to the element of tweaking it from the 34 version where they were businesswomen to giving them separate careers. I noticed that this iteration a lot of people would have found it hard to believe this goes back to postman what did she want to do in postman she wanted to be a businesswoman she wanted to make the restaurant something good she couldn't do that because they were like you're hot girl you need to own that and that's what i think the discussion of this remaking this movie was no one's gonna believe that lana turner is a businesswoman we gotta make her a model we gotta make her an actress we gotta have her treading the board so to speak and paying her dues she has to have that moment where she's meeting the guy who wants to give her a make and be like hey girl i'm gonna take you to the top and go back to that constance mckenzie she's not gonna put out for him by 59 post stompinato you can feel that executive roundtable of okay we're gonna put this movie together we got these people and then nitpicking at that point how much of their life can we put on screen you have the very distinct differences in lana's maternal styles in peyton place and imitation of life but what the two have in common that i don't know if we addressed one thing i really want to throw out about lana Throughout her whole life and career, she was extremely specific about how she looked on screen. You've got Madame X, which we haven't addressed as far as another matronly role that she did after Imitation of Life. She would rather be caught dead than caught looking bad. That was just who she was, even well into her later years. Even dyeing her hair two shades darker, she was going to make a stink about it. That's just the kind of star she was. That has a lot to do with how she was portrayed on screen in both of these films and the kind of mother she was in both of these films. The thing that they have in common to me is the child is just sort of part of the equation. She just sort of stumbles upon it. In neither of the films does the character want to be a mother. She never really addresses in either one. Oh, I love motherhood. This is so great. I want nothing more than to be a mom with a white picket fence and a husband. She doesn't want that in either one, even though her mother 
styles are different in each. When Peyton plays, she had the affair and had the child as a result of that affair. And that's not something she wanted. And then in Imitation of Life, she wanted to be an actress, but the child just happened. They don't even really explain it. She was married, but you never hear her saying that that's what she wanted, especially not more than being an actress. So I think that had a lot to do with Lana's image at the time. Because she was older, she had to play a mother. That's just sort of the age she was. But I think if it were really up to Lana, she would not have wanted to. So they just threw her a bone with like, all right, well, you have a kid here, but you still get to be Lana Turner. Hadn't quite put it together. So I'm glad you said that. In terms of the roundtableness of it, in the story shifting from the original Imitation of Life to the 58 version, I found it much more of... How do we get Lana Turner in the most fabulous clothes possible? Oh, she has to be an actress. Because there's nothing else. The amount of gowns and beautiful garments and jewels that she's wearing in this. Real people don't wear that stuff. You need to be an actress, which is obviously not a real person. The maternal side of it, the other element of this is, I actually find if you look at both of these movies the surrogates for Cheryl Crane that come in in terms of the daughters and in Peyton Place truthfully it's both daughters because the Hope Lang character and what she goes through literally ends up on trial because she has killed an abusive stepfather it's not Lana Turner's daughter but she is a motherly presence to her and has hired her has known her her whole life her daughter's her best friend so if you're looking at these with this viewpoint that we have of Lana Turner and when this came out, there's a lot to be said too of how this could have swayed public opinion for what her daughter went through in, in all of those. And there's a sympathy gained there of these girls who are just lovely and placid and docile and going with the flow and the flow can be good like John Gavin or the flow can be real bad there's something interesting there of what especially the public at the time would have been projecting onto the daughter characters you're totally on to something and i love it so much i mean cheryl crane was really sold as she's 14 years old you know she wasn't a femme fatale she wasn't lolita if you google cheryl crane we'll see that image of her with the little handkerchief tied over her head and just looking like this little cupie doll. There's nothing sexualized or particularly shocking about her. She's just a young girl. More than anything, the exploitation of Cheryl Crane through film and persona of the characters around Lana comes off a bit more clearly because you're totally right. The Hope Lang character is this poor young girl brought down by circumstance and economic factors, goes down this bad path, not through her own devising, but through the circumstances of the town and through her parents' choices specifically. Even Susan Conner's character to an extent, that concept of if you're too smothering of your child, if you're too loving, if you're not loving enough, where is a mother's 
duty begin and end with your children. With Lana, especially in Imitation of Life, it almost takes on more of a mean-spirited twinge a little bit in that her character is so obsessed with her career, which Lana had played career women. I think of something like 1950s, A Life of Her Own. I was just about to say that too. Which feels almost like a prequel to Imitation of Life because she's doing the same thing. The fact that Sandra Dee's character has to come to her and say that I tell my problems to other people. You don't know what's going on with me. And she has that moment with Juanita Moore's character where she's talking about my daughter is everything she wants. She has beautiful home. She has all the things that I never had. You can just imagine that that is her talking about her own child. My daughter has everything that she could ever want. How does this happen? Cheryl Crane in her book about her mom is very, very forgiving and honest about her relationship with her mother. Her books are not B.D. Hyman or Christina Crawford in that they're exposés. I mean, she is very forthright about the fact that her mother married a man that molested her, that her mom made bad choices with men and she ended up bearing the brunt of that. And I think that you see that more in something like Peyton plays than you do in Imitation of Life. I'm glad that we looked at these because again, when we talked about coming up with something for Lana Turner, there's certainly other performances people probably think of first. And both of these films, she is a key character. She is not the only character. She's not the only one with something juicy and often she's not the juiciest. I'm glad that we looked at this in this overview of this very specific time and place and this incident that happened in her life. I love that between Donna Reed is not a hooker and Lana Turner is not the juiciest. We're just (laughs) coming up with slogans, people. (laughs) Samantha, what were you going to say? As a Lana Turner fan, if you had asked me before even thinking about this idea, what should we cover for Lana Turner? I probably would have said something that Lana Turner wanted to cover like something where she's the most beautiful and has all the attention because that's the kind of woman Lana Turner was but it is so fascinating to cover a part of her life it was such a transition she really had to work hard to transition into these kinds of roles even though it wasn't necessarily what she wanted she still absolutely made the best of it and she was still as glamorous as she could be and as Lana Turner as she could be it's amazing to look into her life too I will also point out if this wasn't obvious already you've got the Peyton Place you've got the Imitation of Life if we had time to throw out a third we all know that it would be Madame X I haven't seen it, but I think I have that in Portrait in Black. The progression of her as a mother, she's more and more willing to make herself look bad on screen for the sake of acting. I do want to say that she is also one of several actresses that really tried hard to get into what the quote-unquote kids were into in the zeitgeist. She is one of several actresses that did psychedelia films in the late 60s. I have not seen The Big Cube But I have heard stories, it is legion, of how weird and bizarre it is. I am very interested to see Lana Turner 10 years later from where we are with Imitation of Life into something like The Big Cube. Definitely see Madame X. I feel like if we're doing a triple feature, that's the third to complete the puzzle. Not only is she truly, truly amazing at it, you also got Cure du Lait. You know my favorite soft boy is always a reason to watch. (laughs) Talking about Lana, if you're going to give Lana 
an Oscar nomination for making herself look bad on screen and for trying to tackle those older roles. I don't know why she didn't get one for Madam X. It is what it is. Funny thing to throw out now that we're having this conversation, what would we nominate Lana for if we had to choose only one? Okay, while you guys are thinking about that, I would just like to make sure we've covered that her old mom roles in Peyton Place, she was 37 or 38. So <laughs> settle down, ladies. She really does look bad in Madame X. Settle down, girls. Yeah, Madame <laughs> X, sure. But in this, you're like, oh, does she have a single forehead crease? Ooh, can't have that in the 50s. Oh my, what a hag. It's tough to figure out what I would nominate her for or give her an Oscar for because there's so many options. I would go with what I mentioned before, which is Postman Always Rings Twice. Being Cora Smith, unfortunately, was a bit of a curse, but she really does showcase her talent and tries really hard to rise above what audiences expected of her. And she really does create a character that is so desperate to not be perceived as the hot blonde gold digger. And then because it's a film noir, the fates align to send her down that path anyway. So that's the one I'd give her for. That one almost even goes without saying how dynamic and amazing she is in that role. So that's really up there for me. If I had to choose one, though, maybe I'm biased because she just looks so (laughs) amazing in it. And your whole attention gravitates towards her, but Ziegfeld Girl, she's really amazing. Talk about movies where she has a lot to do. If you can distract me from Judy Garland and Hedy Lamar in a film, you're really doing something for yourself. <laughs> and Lana Turner does that. I would also say, keep her powder dry. I think I've thrown that one out on this podcast before. It's like the female version of From Here to Eternity, as close as you can get. She's really good in that too. I just want to throw out as many amazing Lana Turner movies as possible to honor her hundredth, because it's so cool. My vote is for the bad and the beautiful. But I also want people to please go look up every episode of Falcon Crest that she was on. And if you're wondering about people wanting to keep it down for the kids and then also the older viewers later in life. Bless her. Isn't this the second episode in a row we've talked about Falcon Crest? No, my friend. To... Last time I brought up Dynasty. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Always okay, here you. with the TV references. <laughs> we got a lot of emails and tweets specifically from people as there are a lot of Lana fans out there and I want to give them a chance to to share their thoughts. The Valley of the Dolls podcast, interestingly enough, at BOTD underscore pod said, love Lana. Top picks for me are Ziegfeld Girl, The Postman Always Rings Twice, The Bad and the Beautiful, Imitation of Life, and Samantha's Beloved Madam Egg. That's literally the definitive Lana Turner list. Those are the films we listed. Yeah. <laughs> the next one is from Comma Splice at Oxford Splice that says Bad the Beautiful and Imitation of Life, but their guilty pleasure is Portrait in Black. John Kramer said, My all time favorite beautiful movie actress, seeing her in the white outfit and Postman Always Rings Twice is etched in my mind forever. Christian Young at Chris Opera One said, I think my favorite performance of hers is in my guilty pleasure. Now they call it a guilty pleasure, Samantha, Ziegfeld Girl. It's a deeply silly film and it took me at least two viewings to realize it was set in the 20s, but I love Lana's performance. I have to watch it whenever it's on. She is a little overdramatic, <laughs> if we're being honest. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but that moment where she's half falling, half fainting, rippling down. It's my favorite gift. 
Exactly. I mean, it doesn't get more dramatic than that. And our last one on Lana is from G at Garen Groom, who says, what would have been Lana's 100th birthday is February 8th, the epitome of a movie star. Why has there never been a movie of her life? Quite the backstory. And that's an interesting thing. I talk about biopics a lot. I do a whole bonus show for this podcast about biopics. And I would definitely be interested in seeing a Lana Turner biopic. I'm surprised there hasn't been one, but as we've talked about on Based on a True Podcast, the biopic world is still very heavily white man. If you aren't Marilyn Monroe or Audrey Hepburn, they don't tend to greenlight biopics for you like they used to. But I was watching Imitation of Life and Stay with me, people. I have logic for this. I kept thinking it would be really interesting to see Katherine Heigl play Lana Turner. They're very statuesque, blonde, good cheekbones. Both of them have been maligned in their careers. I don't know. I'm not saying we need a $100 million movie. I remember back in the days when they used to do biopics on ABC. Saturday night viewing, three days to tell the Judy Garland story. I would be interested in a Lana Turner thing. Lifetime is welcome to take my idea and run with it. That's probably the best choice you could have, but it really depends on what era of her life. If you're talking imitation of life, I think Katherine Heigl would be perfect. Now you gotta stay with me. If we're talking Ziegfeld girl era, Amanda Seyfried. I was gonna say Florence Pugh, but I don't hate Amanda Seyfried either. Maybe Amanda Seyfried is a little too genteel. I was going to say Margot Robbie, and also she has the producing shingle to handle it. Oh, that's true. You guys, we'll see where we pitch it. Are we going to take it to basic <laughs> people, or are we going to go to <laughs> I'd love to see a really good documentary about her. That would be also an option. We also got a response to our episode that we did on Donna Reed that I wanted to read. This is from Radosh at... Radosco, who says, love from here to eternity, and Donna did a fine job, but have to disagree with Samantha about the Oscars that year. Thelma Ritter was robbed for her masterful performance in Pickup on South Street, a great Fox Noir I would recommend to you all. I haven't seen that, so I have to decline comment. (laughs) (laughs) I want to say I saw it a long time ago. I got it in like a fox box set back when they used to do those. Funny enough, I had Peyton Place in a fox box set. (laughs) I did as well. Thank you, fox boxes. That's going to close out this episode of Ticklish Business. Remember, you can follow Ticklish Business wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review. It helps us out. We're also on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Anywhere you get your shows, you can also follow us on Twitter. Leave us comments, questions at ticklish underscore biz. We do have an Instagram. It's not the most fancy Instagram, but it is over there. So you can check that out uh, at ticklish biz. And you can also follow what we're doing. I'm on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Samantha Ellis, what's going on with you? Where can fans find you and get in touch? I am on Twitter at Classic Film Geek. You can find some live tweets there. More regular content than my other blogs. But if you want to read some of my older stuff, my blog is at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. And you can find my Cooking with the Stars posts at classicmoviehub.com, which will hopefully return soon. Andrea Clark, what about you? I'm on Twitter at the Drea Clark, and I host a 
contemporary film podcast called Who Shot Ya on Maximum Fun. And remember, if you want to support us with your dollars and get all sorts of bonus content, including interviews, bonus shows, including based on a true podcast and double features, you can do that via Patreon, patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We have a lot of good stuff on there. I add more to it all the time, so check it out. But we will be back next time with a new episode. Till then.